This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On September 25, 1959, the NYPD responded to a 911 call. Two bodies had been found in a Cadillac in Queens, New York. When the investigators arrived, the headlights were on and the engine still running. The passenger, Janice Drake, was an ex-beauty queen and a dancer, but the man sitting in the driver's seat was none other than Anthony Carfano, otherwise known as Little Augie, a well-known mobster that operated on the Lower East Side. The assassin didn't leave behind any clues, but the police had their eyes on Tony Mira a gangster working for the Mafia's Bonanno family. Mira disappeared in the days after the murders. The police staked out his known associates and hideouts, hoping for a lead on the mobster's location. Finally, someone showed up. But it wasn't Mira. It wasn't even another mobster. It was a woman. She was five foot three, wore a skin-tight dress, and carried a toddler. The detectives were baffled. They had no clue who this woman was or what connection she might have to Tony Mira. But they would soon learn that, despite her innocent appearance, Arlene Brickman was capable of crimes rivaling that of any mobster. If she revealed all the secrets she knew, the entire mob could come crumbling down. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals on the Parcast Network. Today, we'll be talking about Arlene Weiss Brickman, a mob girl who associated with some of New York's most infamous gangsters. 
From the mid-1950s through the 80s, she served as a courier, sold drugs, and ran her own bookmaking operation before finally becoming an informant for the FBI. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast's shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. In the mid-20th century, New York's Lower East Side was dominated by the Mafia. While Arlene Weiss Brickman wasn't a direct member of the mob, she was a trusted confidant and consort of many of the city's most dangerous criminals. Arlene was known for seducing men in the mob for any number of reasons, for expensive gifts, information, or just to prove that she was in control. She moved from one partner to the next as she climbed the mob hierarchy, searching for the next powerful man she could seduce. On today's episode, we'll be discussing how Arlene started her career as a so-called mob girl and the childhood influences that led her straight into the seedy underbelly of the Lower East Side. Next week, we'll learn how one fateful night caused Arlene to lose her faith in the mob and uncover the events that finally made her turn her back on them forever. Arlene Weiss was born on August 8, 1933, to Irving and Billy Weiss in New York City. The oldest of two sisters, Arlene was a feisty, energetic child and, by all accounts, grew up happily in the prosperous Knickerbocker village on the Lower East Side. Her father, Irving Weiss, was a second-generation Jewish-American whose own parents owned a grocery store in nearby Williamsburg. Irving's parents long expected their sons to follow in their footsteps, but Irving and his four brothers had expensive tastes that couldn't be supported by the modest family business. Instead, the brothers fell into racketeering, and quickly found connections within the Jewish Mafia, one of New York's major organized crime groups. Irving started out by chauffeuring mobsters around upstate New York. By the time Arlene was a child in the late 30s, he owned a car dealership that unofficially served as a meeting spot for prominent gangsters. On the other side of the family, Arlene's maternal grandmother, Ida Bloom, was also a friend of the Jewish mobsters that ran the Lower East Side. Ida ran the Bloom and Oxman funeral parlor with her longtime partner, Frank Oxman. But the real business of the parlor was bookmaking. The funeral parlor had a secret back room that served as a place to take bets and hold meetings. It was frequented by members of the Clinton Street Boys, a gang of small-time racketeers with a fondness for gambling. Arlene grew up surrounded by gangsters at both her father's and grandmother's businesses. They were introduced to her as uncles. Before we continue, just a brief disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. An article from Vanderbilt University notes that, quote, children are very prone to imitate the actions of those around them, especially adults, end quote. The article references a 1964 study known as the Bobo Doll Experiment. In this study, children who saw adults beating up a doll went on to perform the same actions on the doll themselves. 
The researchers concluded that when a child sees an adult perform in a certain manner, they are very likely to imitate that behavior. The article also notes that parents' influence over their children can come either from direct instruction or through their own actions, such as conversing with other adults while their child is present. According to Teresa Carpenter's biography on Arlene, Mob Girl, a woman in the underworld, Arlene was her father's favorite daughter, and her grandmother, Ida Bloom, also doted on her as a child. Seeing two of her closest guardian figures associating with mobsters must have had a huge impact on Arlene's worldview as she grew older. Exactly. Rather than viewing these gangsters as dangerous, this research suggests that Arlene would want to establish friendly relationships with them, imitating the behavior of her father and grandmother. Another factor to note is the world events happening during Arlene's childhood. When Arlene was born in 1933, New York City was still feeling the effects of the Great Depression. And before she reached her teens, America was once again plunged into economic instability with the start of World War II. While the rest of the neighbors had to ration in-demand items such as steak and eggs during these times of nationwide hardship, Arlene's family never wanted for anything. In fact, Irving's wealth only expanded during the war, beyond the documented profits of his car dealership. In later years, Arlene determined that their father must have been selling cars on the black market. So Arlene didn't just grow up surrounded by the mafia, she also experienced the benefits of being involved with these men. Being a mobster meant having money and connections when no one else did. It meant having power and control when the world was descending into chaos. It's no wonder that Arlene became fixated with the idea of becoming a mob girl. In the 40s and 50s, the organized crime world was run almost exclusively by men. But a select few women were able to find trust and respect within the mafia. They were known as mob girls. These women served mobsters not just as lovers, but also as trusted confidants. In return, a mob girl received gifts, status, and attention from some of the most powerful men in New York City. Arlene was already enamored with the idea of becoming a mob girl, but one childhood idol sealed the deal. From a young age, Arlene was fascinated by glamorous celebrities. A kiss on the hand may be quite continental, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. She was most fond of Marilyn Monroe, until a newspaper article about Virginia Hill caught her eye. Virginia Hill was the ultimate mob girl. She dated several mob men in Chicago during the 1930s, sometimes at the same time, until she caught the eye of Bugsy Siegel, a famous mobster based on the West Coast. Their relationship was volatile, but glamorous. Hill wasn't just his lover. She also helped Siegel carry sensitive information and run the business. She was one of the boys, something Arlene had always wanted. In 1947, Hill dominated the news after Bugsy Siegel's highly publicized murder in Los Angeles. She was a striking figure. She dressed fashionably, and even under oath, she never gave up mob secrets. Arlene described her as, quote, a broad that really made it good, end quote. By the age of 14, Arlene did everything in her power to emulate Hill. She copied her distinctive fashion by adopting form-fitting two-piece suits and dyeing her hair jet black. 
Arlene had already lost her virginity two years earlier, at the young age of 12. After falling under Hill's spell, she made it her mission to seduce mob men, many of whom were in their 30s and 40s. While relationships between teen girls and older men weren't as frowned upon in the 1940s as they are today, this still may have had an impact on Arlene. According to a 1999 study conducted by Dr. Lynn Phillips, teenage girls who entered relationships with older men later came to regret those relationships, saying they led to depression, low self-esteem, and a sense of feeling manipulated, even if they didn't feel that way at the time. In Teresa Carpenter's book, Arlene described some of these encounters as brisk and unpleasant. But this didn't stop her from continuing to seek out these types of relationships, if only because they provided her with validation. At the same time, Arlene saw this as the easiest entryway into the mobster crime syndicates that she had grown up with. She was working her way up the ranks, the same way that an aspiring mobster would. Arlene also saw her actions as a way of getting back at her father. As she grew older, Arlene developed a complicated relationship with her father. Despite Irving's mob connections, he wanted Arlene and her younger sister Barbara to lead respectable lives. As Arlene put it, quote, even the worst mobsters want their children to grow up respectable, end quote. Arlene may have occupied a high place in his affections, but when it came to business, she was left in the dark. She once recalled sitting alone and waiting for her father as he met with Al Capone in a private location. These secretive meetings may have made Arlene even more desperate to become involved with the mafia. As a child from a wealthy family, she was provided with almost anything she wanted. The business of the mob was one of the only things that was forbidden or out of bounds for Arlene. This may have made the mob world seem even more tantalizing. Arlene was surrounded by members of the Jewish mafia from a young age, but it was the Italian mobsters that she found the most attractive. Arlene had long ago determined that the Jewish racketeers her father associated with had more class than the Italians, largely because they weren't constantly trying to kill each other off in territorial disputes. But the Italian mobsters on the Lower East Side were different than the others. They were handsome and had passionate vendettas, which only made them more dangerous. And, of course, they were considered off-limits to Arlene because she was Jewish and expected to date Jewish men. This only made them more attractive in Arlene's eyes. In 1947, Arlene had her eye on one mobster in particular, Anthony Mira, known by his friends as Tony. Tony was a 20-year-old Italian gangster, about six years Arlene's senior, he was known for his ruthlessness as a hired gun for the Bonanno crime family, a group within the Italian mafia. The Bonanno crime family had an intricate hierarchy, and orders were passed down from the top crime bosses to the lower-ranking members, much like a modern-day corporation. As one of the family's soldiers, Tony didn't have power to make important decisions. But Tony was a made man. This meant that he was sworn in as one of the mob's members and that an attack on him would be met with retaliation by the Bonanno family. In other words, he may have been low on the totem pole, but Tony was still a fully initiated member of the mob, with more power and standing than an unofficial associate like Arlene's father. The 14-year-old Arlene set about seducing Tony, 
dressing in her finest figure-hugging suits and strolling by areas that Tony was known to frequent. But weeks went by and Tony never gave her so much as a second glance. Arlene decided to take a more hands-on approach. One night, Arlene dragged a friend along to the Black Horse Saloon, a bar on the Lower East Side that Tony was known to frequent. Arlene had walked by the bar on multiple occasions, but never dared to step inside before. It was a known hangout for mobsters and wise guys, and getting in the way of their discussions could be dangerous. But Arlene was determined. And that night, her boldness paid off. Arlene soon spotted Tony sitting in a corner booth. When he saw her hovering by the bar's entrance, he beckoned her over. Arlene had caught Tony's attention. She hoped he would take her to dinner or to a club, maybe with other mobsters. Just being seen with Tony was enough to make people think you were important. And that was all Arlene wanted. But Tony spoke to her for only a few minutes before he started feeling her up. He then invited her for a drive, which in those days was never just a drive. Arlene was caught off guard. She didn't think the seduction would move quite so quickly, but she couldn't deny feeling excited about finally having Tony's attention. That night, Tony taught her how to perform oral sex for the first time. In the moment, Arlene remembers feeling revolted. But to her, nothing was more important than pleasing Tony Mira. After that night, Arlene went to the Black Horse with Tony every evening, wearing the tightest outfits she owned. She allowed him to feel her up or take her for a drive if he wanted. This wasn't exactly what Arlene had expected her life as a mob girl to look like. She lacked the one thing in the situation that she craved, control. But associating with Tony Mira had its benefits. In exchange for these late night rides, Tony allowed her to be seen with him in public when he wasn't discussing business. When she needed money or if she found herself in a dangerous position at two in the morning, Arlene could always call Tony and he would send someone to pick her up. On occasion, Arlene would run errands for Tony. Most of these errands were simple such as delivering a sealed envelope across town to one of Tony's friends. But they made her feel important, like a true mob girl. Up next, we'll see how dangerous Arlene's mob girl aspirations would soon become. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1947, 14-year-old Arlene Weiss was well on her way to becoming a mob girl. She befriended some small-time associates of New York's crime families and even seduced a soldier of the Bonanno crime family, Tony Mira. But being a mob girl didn't just mean spending time with mobsters. From what Arlene could tell, her idols like Virginia Hill also spent a fair amount of time with non-mob-related celebrities. Arlene made it her mission to find her own celebrity suitor to fit the bill. In August of 1947, Arlene's parents took the family to Long Island for the summer, a long-standing tradition. 
When Arlene grew tired of lounging by the pool, she went biking through the residential streets of Long Island. She made a point of passing by the home of Irving Cohen, a boxing manager for well-known athletes like Rocky Graziano. On one of these occasions, Arlene caught the eye of a boxer named Al Panino. He had a promising career ahead of him and fit everything Arlene was looking for in her dream celebrity partner. Their affairs started quickly and lasted into October when they both returned to New York City. Arlene would go visit Al during his practice near Madison Square Garden. Afterwards, they would rendezvous at the nearby Hotel America. Al was unlike the mob men that Arlene had known up until then. He would bring her home to meet his mother, and late at night, he composed songs for her. In her biography, Arlene said she even thought at the time that she might be in love with Al. But her parents soon found out about the tryst. The evening before one of Al's major boxing matches, they found Arlene at the hotel with him and forced her to come back home with them. Arlene went kicking and screaming. The next day, Al lost his match against Sandy Sadler. After that, his boxing career took a downturn and Arlene lost interest. She found herself longing for more important men to seduce. Arlene's escapades didn't go unnoticed at home. Her father, Irving, mostly turned a blind eye to his daughter's comings and goings. But her mother, Billy, took it upon herself to try disciplining their daughter. She stayed up every night waiting for Arlene to come home. She didn't know exactly what Arlene was up to, only that it was nothing good. On some nights, she would wait until 3 a.m. when Arlene would come waltzing in the door after a late night tryst. Arlene and her mother got into violent screaming matches nearly every evening. But despite her best efforts, Billy couldn't get her daughter to behave. Arlene was learning firsthand about the thrills of being a mob girl. And like most teenagers, she was determined to live her own way, regardless of what her parents said. If anything, these screaming matches just made Arlene more stubborn. But Billy was concerned that the crime-ridden Lower East Side was exacerbating Arlene's wild tendencies. By this time, many families looking for respectability were leaving the Lower East Side for greener pastures in other boroughs. In 1949, when Arlene was 16 years old, her family relocated to Queens. They hoped that by removing their daughter from the mob influence of their neighborhood, they could cure her of her wildness. But Arlene was enjoying her lifestyle too much to abandon it now. And in the mass exodus from the Lower East Side, some of the mob men who used to frequent Ida Bloom's funeral parlor had made Queens their new hangout. Arlene was able to keep seeing mobsters even once they'd settled into their new neighborhood. In the summer of 1951, when Arlene was 18, she met Nathaniel Nelson, known as Nat. Nat was 48 years old and a friend of Arlene's father. More importantly, though, Nat was rich. Arlene had overheard enough from her father to know that Nat was a clothing manufacturer and a secret partner for Jimmy Doyle a capo of the Mafia's Lucchese family. In the hierarchy of the Mafia, a capo, or captain, was a step above the soldiers, like Tony Mira. They had the power to give orders and command respect. Jimmy Doyle was important, and by association, so was Nat Nelson. Arlene was convinced that Nat would provide her with more respect and recognition than her previous lovers. She had no idea what their relationship had in store for her. 
Despite the fact that Arlene was 30 years younger than him, the two quickly became lovers. Arlene's father noticed the attraction between the two and warned Arlene to stay away from him. But if anything, this only made Arlene want him more. Nat Nelson was smitten with Arlene from the beginning. He gave her expensive gifts and money. And after a couple months, he even started talking about marriage. Arlene enjoyed spending time with him, but she wasn't sure if she was ready for marriage, especially not to a man who was so much older than her. She told him they should spend some time apart, hoping that he would forget all about the proposal and come running back to her on a less serious basis. To her surprise, Nat instead took up with another young teenager, frequenting the same bars that Arlene and her friends went to. Arlene found the situation intolerable. She decided to spend some time away for her 18th birthday and went to Concord with her grandmother, Ida. Arlene told her grandmother everything, and she listened without judgment or concern. But as they were preparing to go dancing one night, there was a knock at the door. Arlene was shocked to find Nat Nelson at the door with a diamond bracelet. The couple reconciled and spent the next three weeks together under Ida's roof. It was hardly surprising that, with such an introduction, Ida encouraged Arlene to accept his marriage proposal. According to Teresa Carpenter's book, Ida told Arlene that, quote, if she married Nat, she would have everything she wanted and she wouldn't have to run around anymore, end quote. Arlene was still unsure, but she started spending more time with Nat. In the fall of 1951, 18-year-old Arlene found a job as a model for the Letty Doyle Dress Company. She worked every day and spent her evenings with Nat in his apartment on West 55th Street. Everything was going well until the early winter of 1952, when Arlene noticed that Nat was acting differently. Perhaps because of Arlene's interest in the mob, Nat made a point of taking her to restaurants frequented by Jimmy Doyle, showing off his connections in the mafia. He always enjoyed flaunting his wealth and connections, but he'd always been respectfully deferential in front of the mob bosses like Jimmy Doyle. But in the winter of 1952, Nat started openly bragging about the deals he was making, the people he was meeting in the trucking business, and the favors that he was doing for the boys. Nat's attitude was wearing on the mob. Arlene noticed that whenever the two of them entered La Fontaine, Doyle turned his back and ignored Nat. Arlene didn't know the particulars of what had happened, but there was obviously a problem. On the morning of February 9th, 1952, Arlene and her grandmother decided to go shopping. Before they set off, Arlene wanted to stop by Nat's apartment, hoping he could give them some money. As Arlene got off the elevator on Nat's floor, she ran into none other than Jimmy Doyle, walking out of Nat's apartment. The mob boss glanced at her face. He seemed alarmed, but he didn't speak to her. He simply got on the elevator and left. That was when Arlene noticed that Nat's door was partially open. She walked in carefully, calling his name. Nat was lying on the floor, dressed in casual clothing, with all of his jewelry still on and a bullet hole between his eyes. Arlene ran from the scene as fast as she could. She jumped back into her grandmother's cab, which was waiting downstairs, and hurried back home. Arlene had always known that the mob was dangerous, that was part of the reason why she was attracted to these gangsters in the first place. 
But this was the first time she saw firsthand exactly what that danger meant. Even worse, she had accidentally caught Jimmy Doyle at the scene of the crime. There was no telling what the mob would do to keep her quiet about the murder. Arlene spent the next three days at her parents' apartment, listening to the news and waiting to hear from Jimmy Doyle. She remembers not grieving for Nat, but rather worrying that she would be next on Doyle's list. Four days after the murder, Arlene finally got a call from Jimmy Doyle, asking her to meet him at a hotel. When Arlene asked him why, his only answer was, you know why. Arlene was convinced she'd be walking into a death trap. She dressed in her most fashionable outfit, tossed a fur over her shoulders, and grabbed a taxi to meet him. She recalls thinking, quote, if I'm going, I'm going like this, end quote. But when Arlene finally met Jimmy Doyle face to face, she was surprised to learn that he had no intention of killing her. Instead, he told her that he always liked her and they proceeded to have sex. From that moment on, Arlene was on call for Doyle whenever he wanted to have sex. It was a humiliating experience for her, but she was too afraid to say no. Arlene's seductions had always been about control. She discovered from an early age that she could control men in the bedroom, even the most powerful, dangerous ones. But with Doyle, Arlene had no control over the situation. She was still only 18 years old, and she was afraid that if she refused Jimmy, he might kill her like he killed Nat Nelson. Her humiliation only grew when Doyle started passing her off to his business partners, Johnny Dio and his brother Frankie. As the situation spiraled out of her control, Arlene grew depressed and overwhelmed. She lost her appetite and was constantly frightened. When her parents asked her what was wrong, Arlene would cry and say she couldn't tell them. Irving and Billy eventually decided to take Arlene to a psychiatrist, hoping to get some answers as to what had befallen their daughter. Arlene initially didn't trust the doctor. His pointed questions made her feel as though he too was trying to rob her of control. She even made up fake stories before each session to keep him from discovering the truth. Arlene's psychiatrist decided that the only way they could get to the heart of the matter was by administering a strong sedative. He hoped that this would make her less resistant to his questions, in effect acting as a sort of truth serum. It worked. She told him about everything, from her first sexual experience to her current entanglement with Jimmy Doyle. In later years, Arlene was proud of her resilience and the fact that mob secrets had to be pried out of her with drugs. But now, Arlene's family knew the truth. Her father Irving met with Jimmy Doyle a few days later and promised that his family wouldn't go to the police, provided that Doyle never approached his daughter again. Perhaps because of Irving's own mob connections, Doyle agreed to his terms. In the meantime, Billy and Arlene set off for a trip to Miami. Arlene promised she would turn over a new leaf when they got back. But it would take more than a couple of weeks on the beach for Arlene to renounce her ways. Once she returned to New York, there were only more challenges lying ahead. Up next, we'll continue exploring Arlene's dealings with the mob and her failed romances. Now back to the story. 18-year-old Arlene Weiss returned from her month-long trip to Miami in 1952, vowing to change her ways. 
She spent the next few weeks staying away from men and doing her best to be a good girl. But Arlene thrived on excitement, and it wasn't long before her virtuous lifestyle grew tedious. She started meeting up with old mob acquaintances and quickly fell back into old habits. Arlene's late-night trysts with gangsters soon brought about new complications. During one affair in 1952, Arlene realized she was pregnant for the first time. This was not especially surprising, considering that Arlene had never used birth control. But she had been lucky for the past six years, and she had never had to worry about pregnancy before. Arlene didn't know what to do. She didn't want to have the baby. And at the time, abortions were difficult to come by. After trying several natural remedies, one of which gave her turpentine poisoning, Arlene finally turned to her grandmother for help. Ida and Arlene's mother, Billy, found a doctor who could take care of her situation. Within a couple of days, the pregnancy was terminated, and Arlene had completely recovered from the procedure. The relative ease of ending this first pregnancy may have been why, in the next five years, Arlene became pregnant another eight times. Ida and Billy's assistance was a classic case of enabling. An article from Psych Central defines enabling as behavior that keeps someone from dealing with the negative consequences of their actions. While Arlene's mother and grandmother were just doing what they thought was best for her, they were in fact ensuring that she never suffered any repercussions for her actions. Billy had spent years trying to discipline her daughter by yelling, or even beating her, after her late-night excursions. It's possible that in these pregnancy situations, Billy hoped that by positively supporting her daughter, she could find another way to stop this dangerous behavior. Unfortunately, while Billy hoped that she was helping her daughter, this type of enabling actually causes the problematic behavior to worsen. Interestingly, it was during her eighth abortion that Arlene met her future husband, Norman Brickman. Arlene's last pregnancy occurred when she was 23 and sleeping with another one of her father's friends. Her mother referred her to a doctor in Tribeca. While she was waiting, Arlene noticed a man sitting in the waiting room with a pregnant girl. This was unusual, as in Arlene's experience, men didn't usually come along for moral support when an unexpected pregnancy occurred. The man introduced himself as Norman Brickman. He was a furrier, and while he wasn't the handsomest man Arlene had met, she found him charming and interesting. Arlene didn't think much about the encounter, until he called her a few days later to ask her to dinner. Brickman wasn't a mob man, but he was generous, attractive, and acted like a gentleman. He gave her furs and treated her with kindness, which, after her past experiences with mob men, she found refreshing. Norman asked Arlene to marry him less than two months after they began dating. And strangely enough, she said yes. She may have had an ulterior motive for doing so. Her younger sister, Barbara, had just become engaged, and the whole family was looking forward to the summer wedding. Arlene was dissatisfied with her sister being the center of attention for a whole summer. So when Norman proposed, Arlene said yes without a moment's hesitation. Arlene's family was concerned about the engagement for several reasons. For one, Norman was still married. He and his wife were legally separated, but the divorce hadn't been finalized yet. For another, the circumstances of the couple's meeting made Billy nervous. She didn't want her daughter marrying a man who was not only married, but had a pregnant girlfriend as well. 
but Norman had assured Arlene that the woman he was with at the abortionist's office was merely a friend, and Arlene believed him. Despite her selfish motivations for rushing into a wedding, she truly wanted to make this marriage work. Her own parents' marriage and Ida's relationship with her partner Frank had shown Arlene the benefits of a strong partnership. Beyond that, Arlene knew that if things between her and Norman didn't work out, then her sister's wedding would appear all the more spectacular. She couldn't let that happen. Unfortunately, it didn't take long for the marriage to sour. During the honeymoon, Norman's behavior changed drastically from when he was courting Arlene. He became moody, sulking for hours on end, and drinking excessively. Arlene couldn't account for his change in behavior. She resolved to fix it by throwing herself wholeheartedly into her duties as a housewife. She pressed Norman's shirts and cooked for him. But this didn't ease the growing tension between the couple. Within a couple of weeks of their wedding, Arlene discovered that her husband was having an affair with another woman he had gotten pregnant, named Chicky. Arlene demanded that Norman give up his mistress. He appeared to acquiesce. But the young couple's troubles were only beginning. In June of 1957, two police officers came to the Brickman apartment looking for Norman. It was then Arlene learned that Norman's business was in trouble. He had taken a pile of furs on consignment, but instead of delivering them, he sold them in secret and pocketed the money for himself. Arlene turned to her father, begging him to help Norman stay out of jail. Irving used his mob connections to get Norman out on bail until his hearings. Arlene was relieved. At last, her husband needed her. She was the one in control of the relationship. Around this time, in early July, Arlene discovered she was pregnant. And this time, she wanted to keep the baby. When Arlene told her husband the news, he seemed thrilled. He convinced her to spend a few weeks in Concord with her grandmother, relaxing for the baby's sake. The couple seemed closer than ever. But in the days before Norman's court hearing, Arlene felt guilty for leaving her husband alone in New York. She decided to go back and surprise him at their apartment. But when she unlocked the door, she was shocked to find another woman's clothes in her bedroom. Norman had lied to get her out of New York so that he could spend time with the woman he'd promised to leave, Chicky. When Arlene confronted him, Norman slapped her across the face. That night, enraged and betrayed, Arlene called the police and passed along all the information that Norman had revealed to her about the stolen furs, enough to ensure his guilt at the impending hearing. She regretted the action almost instantly, but it was too late to take it back. The next day, Arlene visited her husband in jail, and he told her he never wanted to see her again. In the days to come, Norman accepted a plea deal that sent him to a maximum security prison in Ossining. Arlene moved back to her parents' apartment, where she found herself alone, miserable, and pregnant. Arlene's daughter, Leslie Rebecca Brickman, was born sometime in the spring of 1958. At just 24 years old, Arlene was a single mother with a failed marriage and a newborn to take care of. Seeking to take back control of her life, Arlene fell back into her old coping mechanism, seeking out the companionship of mobsters. Once her divorce from Norman was finalized, 
Arlene reignited her relationship with Tony Mira. Through Tony, she met another gangster named Alphonse Mosh, known to his friends as Funzi. Funzi was one of the crew chiefs for the Gambino family, and he and Arlene quickly became intimate despite her continued relationship with Mira. She started spending more time at Funzi's apartment, which served as an exchange point for stolen jewelry and other contraband. Funzi also trusted Arlene to carry small packages to the jewelry exchange, a meeting point for black market exchanges. There, she would hang out with the wise guys, listening to them talk about their deals or their daily business. In Teresa Carpenter's biography, Arlene says, quote, In Mobsterland, you took things as they came. You couldn't plan your days because you never knew what was going to happen. It was exciting, end quote. Perhaps this is why Arlene constantly found herself drawn back into this world. She longed for excitement and adventure. And with Funzi, she found an unusual combination of both. Funzi and Arlene were lovers, but he often encouraged her to go out and make her own conquests. He enjoyed hearing about them. One of these conquests was a man named Joe, who offered Arlene a ride home one rainy night. They started talking in his car and eventually went back to his apartment. After that night, Arlene learned that the man was Joe Colombo, a mafia lieutenant who would later become the boss of the Colombo crime family. By the late 1950s, Arlene was in good standing with three of New York's biggest crime families. She had money, connections, and all the clothing and jewelry she could want. She still lived with her parents, who, by now, begrudgingly accepted Arlene's way of life, and even looked after her daughter when she went out at night. As dangerous as the mob world was, Arlene knew that she was protected by the men she seduced, and that if she ever needed anything, she had plenty of people to turn to. She never had anything to worry about. Until the morning of September 26, 1959. That morning, Arlene read an article in the paper about the deaths of Janice Drake and Anthony Carfano, known as Little Augie. After seeing the article, Arlene remembered that in the past few weeks, relations between Little Augie and Arlene's friend and lover, Tony Mira, were icy. It felt similar to how Jimmy Doyle turned his back on Nat Nelson before his untimely death. But Arlene didn't immediately suspect Tony in the murders until he gave her a call and asked her to meet him at a hotel on Lexington Avenue. When she got there, Tony confessed to her that he had killed Little Augie and Janice Drake. On top of that, he said he needed her help. Arlene agreed without hesitation. It's possible that Arlene's associations with mobsters had desensitized her to violence and murder. Arlene had known and trusted Tony for years. She knew how much Tony had done for her, and she had done favors for him in the past as well. So more likely than not, Arlene was able to put aside any moral qualms for the sake of helping an old friend. Perhaps she even hoped her assistance would give her a new status within the Bonanno crime family, which Tony served. That same day, Arlene delivered a package and an envelope to two of Tony's associates. And sometime between visiting Tony at the hotel and her return home, she picked up a police tale. Later that day, two detectives picked her up and brought her down to the station for questioning. Arlene initially thought they wanted information on her ex-husband, Norman. 
but instead they started asking her questions about Tony Mira as well as Tony's known associates. As they listed names, Arlene realized she knew them all. During the questioning, Arlene remembers one of the detectives asking her, Who do you think you are, Virginia Hill? The detective couldn't have known it, but that was the highest form of flattery he could have given her. By the time she left the station, Arlene was pleased with her performance. She was finally a true mob girl, a trustworthy confidant who wouldn't crack under pressure. But it wouldn't be that way forever. In a few short years, one terrifying night would turn her from New York's premier mob girl to the FBI's top informant. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Next week, we'll talk about how Arlene Weiss-Brickman started dealing drugs, ran her own bookmaking operation, and eventually became a government informant. You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Liz Doravitsine and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. 